I'm Sarah Sands from the Daily Mail. And I'm Michael White from The Guardian. Uh, good afternoon, Prime Minister, on behalf of us both. Uh, we've had five or 600 questions come in via email since uh, this event went up on the Downing Street website. Uh, you'll not be surprised to know that some of them are hostile. One chap wants you to jump off a bridge immediately. Uh, others are uh, more friendly, but most of them are curious about aspects of uh, government uh, policy, want to know more, want you to justify things as you would expect. It's a good crop, and we're going to ask a couple of questions of our own and go through the crop. Okay. So if I can yep, start, um, and this is a question reflected in portion of the email, so it's really whether the game's up, um, that your cabinet ministers we know are sort of fighting like ferrets over a job that may not even be vacant. Uh, there's an impression that people are more interested in perks and freebies than the work. And from the outside, it looks a little bit like anarchy. Um, so what I'd like to know is firstly, whether you regret not going earlier when the going was good. Um, secondly, as a lot of the people who have um, emailed want to know is, can you now set a departure date? And thirdly, what you'll be doing afterwards? <laughs> well, I think uh, on departures, uh, I've said enough and I don't want to say anymore because it just gets in the way of what actually I think most people really do expect me to do, which is to get my sleeves rolled up and get on with the job. And whatever it looks like from the outside is different from the inside. I mean, I've spent today this morning with a whole group of people from the National Health Service and the private sector looking at the possibility of collaboration there and then with a major set of public service reformers from all over the public services whether it's police or um, health education um, local social services working about how you improve public services and I mean I know this sounds like a sort of the normal um, winch from the politicians but honestly when you're on the inside, you're getting on with the job. And this stuff that comes in, which is often, you know, very, very lively and eats up a lot of news coverage, you've just got to ignore, because otherwise you don't get on with the job. And I think the interesting thing about the government is whatever, and it's been, you know, a rather um, tough time, obviously, in the last few months. But if you look at the policy direction, whether it's pensions or it's... Um, National Health Service reform, or it's the schools policy, or it's energy, we're actually getting on with the job. And that's, you I think, must what worry about your own reputation. You must think about that, and the timing of your departure is yeah, very much linked you to know, that. The thing is, you get to the stage where you, 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 come to a, you, you come to a very clear view that your job for as long as you do it is to do your very best for the country, try and take the long-term decisions for the future, Try and make sure those are the right decisions. And the rest of the judgment's made at a later time. And whatever, you know, comes in and out every day does not necessarily affect that. And if you take a, a, a long view, I mean, you know, what, what, why bother trying to sort out the pensions framework for the future? Answer, because if you're, you know, if, if you're actually interested and passionate about true politics, which is not a lot of the stuff that comes in and out of the media, but is actually about ideas and policy, then you've got an obligation to work out the best framework for the future for the country. And yet the picture of calm at the centre you've painted, uh, a week ago almost John Prescott gave up Dorney Wood at your suggestion we're told, but said he was staying as Deputy Prime Minister, Deputy Leader, and yet since then we've had the appearance, perhaps it's all our fault, that a number of your colleagues are sort of jockeying for the prospect of uh, that vacancy when it occurs. Well, you know, the, f the funny thing is when I actually read what they said, you sort of hear it all but you actually read what they say and most of them are desperately trying to avoid getting drawn into those types of questions because it's, it's just the way that um, the world of politics and its interaction with the media works today which is one of the reasons for doing this 
because it's a different... People will be able to access the whole of this interview, but the biggest problem you have in politics today is having a dialogue with the public because your dialogue is constantly mediated through the things that the public will, will see, for example, on the news every evening or in you know, headlines in the newspaper. And the disjunction now between what we actually spend our day doing and what is out there as the things that most people must think preoccupies is just enormous. Then should we assume, unmediated, that you and John Prescott will step down together when the time comes, whenever that is? Well, as I said, the trouble is, if I get into all those questions, you just right. get into a great, you know, rigmarole that goes round and round and round, then before you know where you are, you're not talking about the issues, you're talking about... Right, let's, talk, let's talk about an issue. A um, number of our callers, people who've uh, emailed in, concerned about home affairs policy and about the troubles at the Home Office, which everyone knows about. Uh, coincidentally, this morning, a couple of hours ago, better get her name right, Lynn Homer, the woman who runs the Immigration and Nationality Directorate, inside the Home Office where much of the recent trouble has been, said about the foreign prisoners affair, uh, and I quote, I've checked this quote, I felt I let him down uh, 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 in terms of not alerting him to uh, the scale of the problem is what she means. Uh, she's talking about Charles Clark, of course. John Reed has since taken over. He's read the Riot Act and said the department's dysfunctional. I don't know whether you agree with that dramatic way of treating civil servants, but it leads one to wonder should you have let Charles Clark go? Because, you know, we're told you wept about it. Now, uh, should you have left? I, mean, I wouldn't believe everything that so is written about that. Um, but so you didn't? Well, I didn't, actually. No. But okay. you know, does, it, Unmediated does it matter time? or does it not matter? Well, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating detail if you did. You know, but, you know, like a lot of fascinating details, they tend to be somewhat, how can we put it, made up. But, um, no, I think that, you see, I think the most difficult, we were discussing this with all the public service workers today, the most difficult thing is to get a sense of balance. If, if what you read about the Home Office over the past few months was all that the Home Office had done over the past few years, you'd literally think they'd messed the entire thing up. And actually, for example, if you look at asylum, which is a big concern for people, over the past few years they have transformed the asylum system. It used to be one in which it took us months and months, 18 months sometimes, to do an average decision. Um, we only removed one in five of the unfounded asylum claims, and we were proportionately probably the top asylum nation in Europe. None of those things is true anymore. Now, does that mean that the Immigration Department is now working, you know, as it should? No, because there are a whole series of different and other challenges. And Lynn Homer, who you mentioned there, who, who we've, we've brought in from the outside, is actually doing a fantastic job, but it's a hugely difficult job as well. Because every, I mean, I was um, on a, doing a, a, a video conference with President Bush this morning, and the interesting thing is the number one issue in America today is migration, immigration. If you look at France or um, Italy, for example, major issue today, immigration. Why is that? Because you've got globalization, which is pushing waves of people, you know, crossing frontiers across the world. Most of those people we want in our countries because they're students, visitors, tourists, people who come to work for good reason. As the globalization takes effect, then what happens is the challenges of the system become immense. Now, the, the difficulty for us is how do you explain that you have made progress on A, B, and C, but yes, because of the changing pattern of things, you've now got X, Y, and Z to contend with, and those challenges remain. 
And even in the comments that, that John was supposed to make about the Home Office, what he actually said was, look, of course Home Office officials are accountable, I'm accountable, everyone's accountable. Um, but in the end, we are actually doing our best to tackle an extremely difficult situation. Did he overdo it, Mr Reid? No, I don't. I, again, I think if you read what he actually said, he was asked, should heads roll, which is the type of question you get asked, and he said, well, of course, you know, if, if, if people are accountable, they're accountable. In other words, you know, he didn't sort of go out of his way to condemn all the Home Office officials. And I think, as I was saying this morning, that the issue of whether, is it politicians to blame or is it officials to blame? I mean, obviously, you get situations that come about where, where there are mistakes made and you, you, you've got to own up to those. And there was a mistake of the foreign prisoners. There's no doubt about that at all. But some of the most difficult issues are just about challenge and change. And whether it's in, in schools or in health or in law and order, the fact is the world is changing incredibly rapidly. And therefore, what government has to do and how it has to respond to that is a world different from what we could do even when we came to power eight, nine years ago. Um, if I can move on then. Uh, a question that does come up a bit is the um, sort of standards of behavior. Um, amongst politicians, and John Prescott in particular. And one um, email I have here from Justin McKeating from Brighton uh, that says, Dear Prime Minister, there have been several allegations of sexual harassment made against the Deputy Prime Minister, notably from the wife of a Labour MP, who alleges that in 1978, Mr Prescott pushed me quite forcefully against the wall and put his hand up my skirt. Were these allegations to be made against a teacher, a social worker, a doctor, or anyone else, do you think they should be treated as a private matter as you regard the Deputy Prime Minister's conduct, or do you think that person should face disciplinary proceedings? I think the simple answer, Sarah, is if someone's done something wrong, they should f face disciplinary proceedings. Right. But I'm not going to accuse someone of doing something wrong on the basis of, well, I, d I don't know, I actually haven't heard about this thing, but presumably a report in the paper. And I think, how can I put this? I think that the, the problem that we have is that, of course, politicians should be accountable for their behavior. And actually, you know, if you look back over the years, politicians are regularly held to account. But I think the most important thing is that if we do something wrong, fair enough. But I think, like everybody else, we shouldn't be assumed to have done certain things just because people make allegations about us. And, and I try to, when, when allegations are made of, uh, um, of, of particular behavior, I try and investigate it. And there are ministers that have left government as a result of doing things that, that, that are um, either wrong or, or you know, contrary to the interests of the government. But I think sometimes you can get into a situation where you're expected just to follow every single story that's written about someone. And my experience is that when something happens and someone does something wrong, there may be truth in the original allegation but then virtually anything can be then added in the mix to say that they've done half a dozen other things that when you actually investigate them turn out not quite to be right but and how, how do you feel about um, john prescott's defense that it's because he's a human shield um, for you that um he's allowed to that he's in that he's indulged and that he's um allowed to stay on when perhaps other people wouldn't it is, that, is that what he said he used the word shield in an interview with the guy oh, I'm, I'm the shield taking the battering and he meant you yeah well it's, you. it's uh I think the, the difficulty for anyone is um, in his position is that you, you, you do get a certain amount of, of hammering. And I, but I suppose <laughs> I would have to say I get, I get a certain amount myself. I mean, in the end, his, the part that he's played in changing the Labour Party, I think people will look back on and say is as substantial as anyone else's.
funnily enough, including mine. Right. Substantial as yours. Right. We've got a huge pile of questions here, which we've been through uh, uh, quickly, so I'm going to yeah. change the tack. On behalf of Julian Mosley, uh, writing here from uh, London E8. Dear Mr. Blair, my daughter's at Exeter University in her first year. While the lecturers, some of whom are on strike, of course, may have a compelling case and employers and government may be unwilling to settle at the required levels, it seems bizarre that the only people are going to suffer are the students. This dispute will eventually be settled, but other people will move on with their lives. But what will happen to the students affects their entire futures. Can't you intervene, Mr. Blair, in this grossly unfair disaster? Intervene now. I'm reluctant to, to, to try and negotiate this myself because I don't think that the, the precedents for that are very good. I hope they can find a solution. But is it right that lecturers in a position of responsibility, authority figures in our society should uh, take the sort of action which affects, it's not so much the first year students or they're worrying to them, it's the people taking their finals, isn't it? No, I'm really sorry they've, they've taken industrial action. And, and is that enough in your position? Um, well, I think the best thing is for us to encourage the two sides to negotiate a settlement. I hope they will. I think it's possible that they will, and they should do so as quickly as possible for the sake of the students. But I don't think it, it's a situation that um, should ever have been allowed to get to industrial action. Right. Can I ask about um, Iraq? There's obviously a huge amount of correspondence sure. about that, and particularly um, about the, well, three lines. One is um, whether we had any real interest in being there, national interest in being there. Um, secondly, when the troops um, can come out. And um, this is one email, it's just a particularly pointed one, um, that says it's from Debbie Connor um, from, um, doesn't say where, and uh, the question is, how do you feel sending someone else's son to war when you would protect your own sons from going? Well, it's a very, very heavy responsibility yeah. ever to take um, military action. And what has happened in the past few years, because... Saddam Hussein was removed in, what, May 2003. But for the last three years, we've been fighting a battle um, against terrorists and insurgents in Iraq who, who are trying to disrupt what is a democratic process there. And the only thing I say to people is that the reason it's been really tough and difficult is because they are determined, those who are engaging in the terrorism and the insurgency and the banditry and the, 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 the indiscriminate killing of civilians, um, their determination is to stop the democratic process working. Now, the reason for that is the same reason they're trying to stop it in Afghanistan. It's the same reason why you've got this global terrorism everywhere. And in my view, defeating it in Iraq is an important part of defeating it everywhere. And whatever else has happened in Iraq, you've got a democratic process. I mean, I met the leaders of all the main groups there. They've been elected by the people of the country in its first ever full democratic election. You've got Sunnis, Kurds, Shia all working together. And surely our job should be to support them in their struggle for democracy because if they succeed then this global terrorism is dealt a worldwide blow and that they know that that's why they're there trying to stop us and have we made things better or worse do you think for the iraqi people well you know it's a fascinating thing because one of the things i think sometimes happens is we disenfranchise the majority of iraqis not a single one of the politicians i spoke to in baghdad and they're all directly elected by their different groups including the sunnis who at first, at any rate, were very, very hostile to the political process. Not one of them said they wanted the days of Saddam back. But what the coalition has failed to do is keep the peace on the streets, failed to create the necessary security in which this democratic process, which you rightly want to encourage, can, can flourish with any confidence. 
and even uh, translators, uh, people who work for the occupation forces and for the foreign media now being targeted and, and, and killed. Now, that's not your responsibility, but nonetheless, uh, you and President Bush and the coalition went in. People sometimes say to me, uh, that Tony Blair, he's a liar. He lied about the WMD, and I say, no, I don't think he did. I think he believes what he tells us all on the television, but he, he and Mr. Bush were perhaps guilty of considerable naivety about the ease with which they thought they could bring about change in a society which had been under a dictatorship for 34 years. Uh, so, a bit naive, a bit uh, over-optimistic about what you could well, do? Just on the, the point about the WMD, I mean, one of the things that people can now do, because it was all published as part of one of the several reports into, into Iraq, is people can go and read the intelligence I got. You know, they can actually read the Joint Intelligence Committee reports. So, in a sense, people can make their own judgment as to whether... Lies were told but it's all hedged with caveats, intelligence reports, it always is. You won't ever, yeah, you won't but, ever put out any dossiers again, will you? Um, actually, we would, as I've said before, we'd have been far better just publishing the actual intelligence reports. Because <laughs> I think people would have said, well, fair enough. But anyway, people can read those, and it's quite important to say that, because occasionally if people are really interested, they can go and read what I received, and then they can make up their mind as to what they would have thought if they read the same thing. On the, the point about naivety, I think that... What has happened in Iraq is that, and I think it happened from the assassination of the UN staff in August 2003 onwards, is that this terrorism, which, which I mean, I have a particular view on, I think it's an ideology, it's a global movement, and it is not a set of disparate, disaffected people. It's an actual movement with a clear set of ideas and a clear set of aims. And what happened from that time onwards is that they moved into Iraq, joined up with various forces who were anti-democratic in Iraq, and their purpose is to destroy democracy. Now, the charge, if you like, against us is that you haven't succeeded in defeating them. Well, the only way of defeating them is to build the democratic process and then build the capability of the Iraqis themselves. And all I say about that is there is another picture of uh, Iraq today, which you can also see which is that out well, of the... Well, you can't see it because it's very dangerous well, for foreign media to get out and about it, 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 in the key provinces. It is, American but... correspondent, British one, nearly killed the other day. Sure, but actually, of the 18 provinces, it is in four provinces, admittedly the four most important, where the majority of violence is. Including Basra, where things were calmer and are now worse. Yeah, but it, again, it's interesting to ask, well, why is that happening? Because people get the impression here, from a lot of what is, is, is in our media, that all the people in Basra want the British troops to go home. They don't. Not a single politician, again, that I spoke to, including those with links with the Shia down south, wanted the British or American or the troops of the 25 other countries that are there out precipitately. Now, all of them want us out British at some time. Patrol, uh, in, in the way that they used to be able to two years ago. There's, de there's definitely a change of mood in, in Basra. Well, there's people a change of against... tactic by yeah. those people who want to stop a non-sectarian solution to Iraq. Look, wh what's happened is you've got, you've got two extremes here, and again, this is important to explain. Up in the center of Baghdad, you've got those people who were extremists connected with Sunnis, who basically thought that they were going to be excluded from the political process, right? Actually, what is happening is that the Sunnis are now coming into the political process. They're still fighting from various extremists going on. But in a sense, that part of the insurgency or the terrorism has, has somewhat changed its, its nature. It's now increasingly driven um, by groups of people who want to have a sectarian fight and isn't related to the majority community amongst the Sunni. Now, then what you've got down south is a different issue, which is some of the people 
connected with the extremes on the Shia side, who, as they have seen that the process is indeed inclusive, have started to fight in order that we don't have a non-sectarian approach, in order that, you know, this, these are the people who want to tip the, the whole country into civil war. Um, now, what, what's important is to for, stop that. I know you could talk for half an hour on this without drawing breath, uh, <laughs> and you have meetings to go to. Uh, we want to move on with a, a, a spread of our questions. Uh, I've got Ian Darling, one from Ian Darling in Twyford, Berkshire, who says, why is this government procuring technology for the National Identity Register, part of the National Identity Scheme, which many experts in the field uh, uh, say a centralised, context-linking database is an incredibly stupid way of developing a system for managing questions of personal uh, identity, ID. And he adds, if Mr. Blair talks about ID and not the National Identity Register, he's avoiding the question, so don't do that. And Geraint Bevan from Glasgow adds, if this sort of system, the National Register, was being developed in Germany in the 30s, would you have advised uh, uh, German Jews to uh, cooperate with it? Well, two separate questions. One is a technical right. question. People don't believe, yeah, technical yeah. and security. Yeah. On the technical question, look, I'm the last person to give a technical, as you know, this is true. <laughs> to give a technical answer. But the fact is, what you find in this situation, as in many others, is that you'll find different experts with different views. We have tried to get the best view we can as the right technology to set the, up the, the experts making the money, the potential contracts out of it, tend to be more bullish. I've heard this story many times, uh, the tax credits, the child support agency, uh, and various others, big NHS IT scheme in trouble with them, big schemes, they say, they're too big. The outside experts, with no, nothing to gain or lose, tend to be much more sceptical about all these schemes, and you've got trouble at the moment with all of them. Yeah, but, you know, again, I mean, we could go through each of those, because, again, the facts aren't, if, for example... It's depressing to go through all of them. Well, you know, if you look at the National Health Service IT issue, I mean, actually, I was just uh, studying the, 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 this afternoon, or, or this morning, rather, because I thought I might get questions on it with the public service workers. I mean, actually, there's a lot of it that's working perfectly well. Um, but in any big IT change, you're going to get problems that arise. And you could take something like the passport agency, for example, and how they managed to change that's, their system, and it worked a lot better. That's what they got going, yeah. Right. But uh, my only point is, we take the best technical advice. We don't just take it from the people contracting. Take the best technical advice possible, and we do it, you know, according to the best way we can do it. But uh, the, the idea of a national register is not unknown. I mean, most countries have identity systems, um, and the whole point about the reason why I think it's important we go for identity cards and an identity database today is that identity fraud and abuse is a major, major problem. Now, the civil liberties aspect of it, I just, I mean, look, it's a, it's a, it's a view. I don't personally think it matters very much. Most people have some form of identity today. It's not... It's the central base which worries people, isn't it, Sarah? You, you've got to have all sorts of controls on that, and we, do, we, we will have it. But these aren't things... You know, a system of national identity is not unknown in the world today. And the only thing I say to people is, don't tell me I've got to try and tackle these problems of identifying illegal immigrants, um, people coming into our country for organised crime purposes or people trafficking, um, fraud on the National Health Service, fraud on the benefit system, and then when the overwhelming evidence is the best way of giving yourself the best chance, not perfect, but the best chance of dealing with it, is an identity system that I can't do it. Because otherwise, you know, identity abuse today is a major, major factor.
it's bound to be in a globalized world. And the whole point about the technology, as I understand it, is because you've got biometric technology that is available for the first time, that is far more secure and far less easy to, to, to defraud. Right. Sorry. Let's return to you. Uh, we talked about intelligence in relation to Iraq, um, both over-reliance on intelligence and quality intelligence. And this is obviously a domestic issue as well. Here's an email from Jason Moore who says, we're constantly being told to rely on the intelligence information regarding security and terrorist threats in this country, yet such intelligence is proving to be wrong or misinformed time and time again. What happened in Forest Gate, which is one mile from where I live? Question mark. Well, first of all, we don't yet know. Mm. And I think we should be very, very wary of drawing conclusions. But my view, again, is absolutely clear. I support the police 101% and the security services. I think if they have a reasonable piece of intelligence that they think that they have got to investigate and take action on, they should. And you can only imagine if they fail to take action and something terrible happened, what outcry there would be then. So they're in an impossible situation. And my view is, you, you know, I know um, Andy Heyman and... Uh, Liza Manning and Bullion are the people who, who front up our services very well. They're absolutely top-rate professionals. They should be given support in getting on with the job. And I wouldn't draw any conclusions from Forest Gate at the moment, frankly. Are you concerned about the sort of Muslim backlash if you do get things wrong? I'm really not, because I think it's a, it's a real mistake to think that your average person from the Muslim community is any different from anybody else. They know perfectly well there's a problem. We know there's a problem with terrorism. You know, we're coming up to the 7-7 anniversary. We know there's a problem with terrorism. I mean, you see today, I think, a whole series of people arrested in Canada, for example. You know, right around the world, this is a problem. That seems so, a very successful operation, though. That there is a sort of some concern about competence, I suppose, which... Um, yeah, but I, I think... Well, first of all, as I say, I wouldn't draw any conclusions about this uh, particular Forest Gate incident at the moment. Well, it's, 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 the, the, a house in Forest Gate is not as big as Iraq, and they, they've searched it for two or three days. They, they appear to have drawn a blank, however honourable the motives. Yeah, but let's just wait and see. I mean, there may be a whole series of things that they, they need to look into in relation to that. I mean, I'm, uh, you, you know, it's just... But my point is very simple. If they get information, and they think that information is reasonable, and these are people expert in this field, then my view is that their duty is to go and make sure they do everything possible. And I think the Islamic community, like everybody else, recognizes this will happen. And, you know, if it, if it didn't happen, they would be getting slammed the opposite way. If, if anything turned, turned out to be, you know, to, to, to go seriously wrong, and, and someone then was able at a later time to say, well, here was a piece of information, why didn't you do it? You know, so I, I just think part of the modern world, I'm afraid, is that we have to live with a greater degree of precaution on the part of our security services um, and our police. And one of the reasons why I think it is so important at every level to defeat this terrorism is that this threat is real, it's out there, and it's in every major country in the world now. But we do need to be accurate, don't we? That's of course yeah. we need to be accurate, but I mean, we need to, be, we need to take precautions. And that will mean acting on information without waiting until an event actually unfolds. And the real problem, the reason why you know, I feel so strongly about this terrorism and why I think that you know, a large part of our own opinion in the West has just got this wrong, but this is just my view, is that the point about this terrorism is that they're prepared to kill without limit. That is the difference. 
and I've got into trouble before for saying this, and so let me choose my words very carefully. Every single person the IRA killed or loyalist government killed, that is equally wrong. There's no, you know, any death through terrorism of innocent people is absolutely wrong. But the difference with this global terrorist movement we have now is that they killed 3,000 people on the streets of New York. You know, they killed over 50 people on the, the streets of London, 200 people in Madrid. But if they could have multiplied any of those numbers by a factor of 10, they would have done it. Indeed. And that's what's different. You, you hold your monthly press conferences in this very room, and I've heard you say that several times. Right, terror on a different <laughs> scale here, uh, but uh, nonetheless distressing. Uh, Joanne Sinton, she says, I'm a Labour supporter, yet I feel let down. Uh, why? Well, I live in Grimsby, and like many other towns, we decent ordinary citizens have come to the end of our tether. Mindless thuggery, vandalism committed by yob culture. She then describes how local people tidied up na difficult neighbourhoods, planted trees and tubs, and then quotes, along came idiots and destroyed the lot. Uh, my question is, when are you going to realise that harsher penalties are needed? for mindless thugs who are irrespective of their age. Uh, and just to complicate me, she doesn't say this, but we read in this morning's papers, the prisons are full and uh, there wasn't uh, enough anticipation that new prisons would be needed, contracts to build them. So um, uh, she's feeling let down in Grimsby. Well, first of all, because we are expanding the prison places and have expanded them, I don't know, by thousands in the, in the past few years. We're um, to let people out early because there isn't enough room. No, I mean, the, 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 actually, people are staying, on average, in prison um, longer. The sentences are longer, too. Um, there are early release schemes, always have been parole schemes. But I, I, I don't think that's really the basic point that she's making. I totally agree with her. Um, that's why we've introduced the antisocial behaviour laws and measures. Now, what needs to happen in any area is what I have done is I've given the new powers to the police and local authorities and others and we've given the resources because we're increasing both numbers of police and community support officers and, and, and in the money we, we put towards policing. And it now is for the local communities with the police and local authorities to sit down and work out the best way to use these powers. But for example, um, it's not just antisocial behaviour orders. You can disperse gangs of kids. You can take away the um, money and um, the assets of drug dealers in local communities. You can shut down houses and evict the people where the house is used for drug dealing. You can close public houses where there's constant fights. Um, you can have fixed penalty notices for vandalism as well as having to go through a laborious court process. And what's more, I've said to people, we'll introduce further powers if people want them. Um, now, obviously what is happening to her is very, very wrong and in her community. But I could take you to other communities now that have used these new powers and resources and have made a real difference to people's lives. I mean, just up the road from here, I saw myself in, in around the King's Cross area, how they managed to get rid of the drug dealers and the vandals and so on. And, you know, this has been done by using these new powers and resources. So the perception that we're, we've got a, a rising problem of violent crime, not crime overall, but violent crime, particularly at the moment, it seems, knife crime, is that... Well, Misperception? Look, is that the media? Or, uh, you know the facts as well as I do. Well, I don't know, no, well, because we get conflicting versions, don't we? We're told by one set of figures that uh, crime is falling and others much more alarming. And very important categories like youth crime is left out of some of the figures. Uh, uh, yeah, people you, feel it's... The figures, whether on recorded crime or on British Crime say, Survey overall, show that crime has fallen. However, the point I've long since learned, there was no point in debating statistics with people about crime, because... 
if you are a victim of crime or you're living in fear of crime, the last thing you want to hear is me telling you crime's gone down by X percent because you don't feel that and you don't think it. And I think there is, but this is the whole reason why I wanted to start this debate about civil liberties and the law, because I think this is the heart of it. Um, there is an ugly side to today's crime that I think is definitively different from when we were growing up. I think organized crime is far more vicious. I think the issue of drugs and crime make for a sort of um, sense of lawlessness that is far more profound than before. And I think you've just got a general disrespect on the part of certain groups of people. But a, a lot of our emails say, yes, but you're endangering civil liberties carelessly. You, a lawyer of all people, mm. uh, are doing this. And, you know, we can tackle crime, but we don't tackle crime by behaving ways which are wrong and without well, due process. This, this, is, that this is the debate I'd love to have in the country over the next few months, because I think there's a fundamental issue here. Because I am quite sure, based on the experience I've had in government, you cannot solve some of these law and order problems unless you are prepared quite profoundly to change and rebalance the system of criminal justice so that you have more summary justice, more summary powers, more ability for quick and effective action to be taken, even if it will cross the line that most people normally think of as there in terms of civil liberties. And my view is that you can decide that you're not going to do it for civil liberty reasons, decide it, but then don't say to the politicians and all the rest of it, um, you've got to deal with this problem, because you cannot deal with it, in my view, by the normal processes of the law. You just can't do it. That The way the world's changed means that the only, and this is why we only started to get any action on antisocial behavior when we introduced the, the power to get antisocial behavior orders, summary powers for the police, and the ability to take swift action. Otherwise, it's just, it's, the, the, the scale of change in community, family life, um, economic, and social life is just too great, it's too profound. Now, I, I, that's the debate I want to have with people, because what I get, you know, that one of the things that's very frustrating for me is, I get people saying to me, why aren't you doing this, this, and this in re relation to law and order? And then when I introduce the legislation in Parliament, you know, in debates often not reported, everyone's opposing the measures. Uh, one last question, which is, uh, Tessa Giles flying the St George's flag on her car, will you be, and will you be recommending that the rest of your ministers do the same? <laughs> this is a difficult question, because I, I just heard, heard about um, Tess doing this. Well, I'll certainly be supporting the England team very strongly. I'll, I'll have to reflect on the, the best and most appropriate There's way to do that. You see, some <laughs> of our questioners say you shouldn't do it. You're the Prime Minister of the four home countries. That would be quite wrong. No, I think that's rubbish. So you might do it. Well, I, don't, I mean, look, I think what you, how you express your support is another matter, but I think the idea that it's wrong to put the England flag up, I mean, why not? I mean, it's the flag of England. I mean, it would be completely absurd. I'm sure if um, Scotland were in the World Scotsman Cup, people... in the adjoining building. Yeah, I'm sure he's perfectly happy Where's to support the England flag too, <laughs> in, in terms of when, it, when, when they're in the, in, in the World Cup. I think, I can't, it's just ridiculous. I mean, why can't people... Um, support the England flag. Of course they can. I mean, I, honestly, right. I, I don't, don't understand that one at all. Let us end on an elevated note. <laughs> Robert Page, writing from Selly Park in Birmingham. Does the Prime Minister have a vision of the good society? If so, does he think he might share it with us? 
Well, I think I do. I hope I do. I mean, my politics is based on the view that you should have the maximum opportunity for everybody, regardless of their um, background, class, race, colour, religion. And that should be maxed, however, matched, however, by responsibility from all, which means that you, which is why I'm strong on the law and order ticket. I think that in the end, it's our job to try and create opportunities for people. Um, but I think the only way you can make a society, a good society function is if those opportunities are matched with responsibilities as well. And I think the whole of my politics is really based on the idea of escaping the sort of left-right division that I grew up with, whereas the left always talked about opportunity and the right always talked about responsibility. And any sensible um, basis for community life today means you, you, you have both. So there it is. Time's up. I think that's our time. Time's up. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Thank you.